Don Bluth, Gary Goldman and John Pomeroy are behind some of the most beloved animated films of all time. An American Tale, The Land Before Time, The Secret of Nim. But before all that, they worked at Disney. We started out bonding together in 1973 as three artists who wanted to learn everything about the craft and make it the best possible craft at our home at Disney Studios. That's John Pomeroy. We felt that we weren't learning fast enough to fill the shoes of the men who were retiring. The men who were retiring were Disney's famous nine old men. They were the animators who'd been there from the start, from Snow White. We were learning everything about animation, but we knew very little about post-production, about contracting music, about photographing scenes, about special effects. There was a lot of areas that we weren't being taught. And so we decided to, on our own moonlight hours in Don's garage on weekends and late nights, we would answer these questions by crafting our own short film from scratch. At Disney, they were just learning the animation part. In Don Bluth's garage, they were teaching themselves how to make every aspect of a movie. We would start with storyboard. We would film the storyboard, make a story real. When that looked good, we would create the layouts and then animate it and then color it and ink and paint it and then finally get it to final color. And in all these steps, we were learning things that we never learned over at Disney. And so we were advancing our learning curve quite quickly to the point where even the um, animation supervisor, Ed Hansen, came to Don's garage, our setup there that we had, and he was very impressed. He congratulated us. He thought it was fantastic that we were trying harder to learn faster to be able to be prepared to fill the shoes of the men who were retiring. So that's how it started. And then after about two or three years of that, we began noticing that we were constantly bumping our creative heads against the ceiling at Disney. They seemed to have been in kind of a creative rut. Disney was years away from their famous renaissance, and John, Gary, and Don felt the movies they were making were a far cry from the classics like Bambi and Pinocchio. We felt no matter what we do or try to alter that or reform that, it still maintained that ceiling that we were very frustrated with. And so around 1977, 78, Don was given the chance to direct animation on Pete's Dragon. And they were recognizing him as the new leader of feature animation. But it was at that time that we thought, well, maybe we better begin to build our own lifeboat just in case it doesn't work here at Disney. Once we got that thought in our head, it advanced itself to, we've got to make our own way. We've got to make sure that we create a ways and means that we can carry on animation the way we know it. Because we didn't know if we were actually witnessing the demise of feature animation because the quality wasn't advancing. No one was breaking new ground like in the days of Walt Disney. Walt was a visionary, and he would never do the same thing twice. He was always advancing the art form, trying new things. That wasn't happening at the studio. It was very frustrating and disappointing. On top of that, the younger animators who'd just come to Disney from college felt that they were ready to take the helm. Many of them made it known that they didn't want to work under Don's direction. Tensions were rising. All the while, Don, Gary and John were working away outside hours in Don's garage. When one day they got a call from an ex-Disney executive who'd heard they were unhappy. He asked them if he could finance them to do a feature film, would they form their own company and leave Disney? They replied with an enthusiastic yes. 
On September 13th, Don Bluth's birthday, they marched into Disney, resignations in hand. The thought that that was going through my head, Liam, as we were walking down Dopey Drive, it felt like a scene out of an old Western, an old American Western. Think of gunfight at OK Corral. The three of us walking with our guns loaded, with our resignations in our back pocket, we came walking three abreast from the parking lot down Dopey Drive and turned onto Mickey Avenue coming towards the studio. I think it was about high noon around that time. We were supposed to be on vacations and all of a sudden we showed up on the lot. From the second floor window was Art Stevens, who was the director of Fox and Hound. His face was pressed against the plate glass in horror, wondering, what are these guys doing back? So he made a beeline downstairs and met us just outside the door of Ed Hansen's office. As we walked in there, and he was smiling and saying, guys, what are you doing back? And then we told him, Ed, we are, we are resigning. We have decided to go and pursue our, our own desire to advance animation on our own as our own separate company. And he began, he began crying. Ed Hansen was in tears. Art Stevens was near tears. Joanna Phillips, Ed's secretary. It was, it was a, a tearful departure. And they hated to see us go, obviously, and they wished us well. There was hugs, well wishes, and then we left the studio. Gary Goldman recalled walking out only to have Disney CEO Ron Miller call out, good luck, you're gonna need it. He was kind of bitter that we left. Uh, That was real evident in the following day when there was the mass exodus of many of the artists, I think about 15 or 16 left the following day. The media dubbed them the Disney defectors. That caused the big uproar at the studio. But now they were out on their own. They could make the movies they wanted to make. Their first movie and Don's directorial debut, The Secret of Nim, was a success. During the production of their second film, An American Tale, Problems with the budget saw their CEO, Morris Sullivan, begin to look for a solution. He had looked at our, not just our economy, but our kind of our business model. And he thought for a better future, maybe what we need to do is approach a foreign government and see if they would be willing to host us starting and implementing a animation industry in their country. So he put out feelers to countries in Asia countries in South America, in Europe, and the most favorable one that came back was from the Industrial Development Authority, IDA, in Ireland. Morris negotiated a contract, and the Irish Development Authority gave the studio the largest grant to a non-manufacturing company in Ireland's history. In the late spring of 1985, in the middle of making an American tale, they began moving to Dublin. I'm Liam Garrity. It's time to meet... Your maker. (coughs) Excuse me. Meet your maker. Sullivan Bluth established an ink and paint facility in Balgriffin, just north of Dublin, to paint the cells for an American tale. 
They interviewed young artists and hired a hundred of them to learn the art of cell painting. And from those 100 tested, chose 26 to come to their studio in California to train at other positions in the animation process. Then they moved themselves and 87 American and Canadian animation artists and technicians to Dublin in mid-November of 1986, just days before an American Tales premiere in the USA. Here's former Sullivan Bluth financial director, Andrew Fitzpatrick. It was a big, a big migration. I mean, I remember at the time, Maura Sullivan, who tended to simplify things, saying to a number of the Americans who were freaking out about the logistics involved in moving their families, their pets, sometimes their cars to Ireland. I remember him saying, listen, your ancestors crossed the country in covered wagons. And all I'm asking you to do is get on a plane sip a martini and you'll you'll wake up in Ireland, what's the big problem? (laughs) Of course, it was a little bit more difficult than that. We arrived in Ireland, and I think in one of the coldest winters that you'd had in 100 years. That's Don Bluth. It's a bit of shock. And Gary Goldman. (laughs) So it was very, very difficult for us to even get our legs on the ground after we went there. It turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life. Bluth lived in Rohini, as for Goldman... And I lived down on Woodbine, just down from UCD. And a lot of our employees, as they came in from the States, would stay with my wife and I for until they found a home. It was probably very different for me. First of all, you know, there was a lot of things in the language that mean different things than they mean in the United States. So you dealt with that. But dealing with the food, dealing with particularly the weather, you know, because it's so overcast all the time that you can get a little depressed... So Don lived about two and a half miles from the beach in Southern California. Yeah, and I'm used to sunshine all the time, you know, on my skin. And, and it was kind of, but you know what? I, the, the people just overcame all that because I think the Irish people are just absolutely wonderful. And they sing a lot. Um, they're very emotional people, as I discovered. And if they could sing, they could certainly draw because the same thing that makes them sing can come through the light of a pencil. very very exciting for young people who were coming uh, into into film into animation into animation at an industrial level that's alistair heron lecturer in ulster university in the belfast school of art this was a very exciting time you know where hundreds of people would be employed and would be trained up in the different skills at certain levels that takes time and it takes investment however it's not just you can't train a classical animator overnight it does take a long long time One of the things that Don and Gary wanted to do was to get better training for them. Michael Algar is an animation producer. He ran the Irish Film Board in the 80s. So they arranged with Ballyferman Senior College because Sullivan Bluth was based on Cunningham Road, so the nearest third-level college in that way was Ballyferman Senior College. So they arranged with Jerome Morrissey at Ballyferman to take on board the syllabus from Sheridan College in Toronto. And Sheridan at that time was probably the best animation college in the world and a couple of experienced people from Bluth moved over to Ballyfermot to help with teaching and getting into it as well as a lady called Thelma Chambers who brought other expertise to the course in particular with life drawing which was an element that Sheridan didn't pay as much attention to but it meant that by the end of the 80s beginning of the 90s Ballyfermot was running an extremely good 
animation course still is. 75 students have enrolled on the first year of the course, which concentrates on basic drawing skills and an introduction to classical animation. Their progress will be monitored by professionals at Sullivan Bluth, and those who successfully complete the second year will be awarded an internationally recognised certificate. <laughs> Speaking of international recognition, world-famous mouse Feifel helped Minister Brian Lenehan to open the new school. Feifel was the star of An American Tale, the record-earning cartoon movie which was completed in Ireland by Sullivan Bluth. They were turning out every year more and more accomplished animators, background painters, production managers, etc. and so on. As a result of all that, there were more and more Irish-trained people on the market. That would be the pattern we were looking at in Ireland. If we could get Ballyferma to train young students so that you know we had a crop of people coming up that we could hire then, you know, the pictures would be better and better. The quality would go up. Approximately 170 Irish people are employed in a 300-strong workforce. And interviews are being held daily to find more artistic people who can be trained to become animators, with a view to increasing Irish numbers to 360 by the end of the year. I was doing Leaving Cert Art and I had vowed to myself that I would never be an artist because my dad was an artist and, you know, we were always starving and could never pay the electricity bill. Celine Kiernan was a classical feature character animator for over 17 years. She's a full-time writer now. And I said to myself I was going to be a physicist, which is ridiculous because I'm dyscalchic and dyslexic, so I couldn't hold a formula in my head to save my life. But this is what I thought was a stable job in those days. And when I told my art teacher that I was giving up art with the leaving, he said, no, you're not. And he made me do it outside of hours. So he used to chase me down the corridor. Mr. Carney, I owe you everything. He used to chase me down the corridor. Have you got your homework done? All this kind of stuff. So I did it outside of hours. And I remember I was in making my portfolio. And he had one of those um, things in the classroom, which I can never remember the name of. The, yeah, I know the spinny thing. The way spinny you thing. It. You stick yeah, your yeah. eye in? Yeah. A zoetrope was what we were trying to remember. Yeah, oh, yeah, you stick you stick your eye to the slit and you turn it and like there's a series of little drawings on cards inside and they move. And I remember looking through the slit. I remember to this day the physical shock of seeing those drawings move and knowing that that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Just bang, like bang! And that was it. That was me determined that I'll affect physics like that's what I want to do. Celine went to study in Dunleary. But it was mostly film. There, no offence to the teachers, because it was a great course, I loved it. But the animation course was real kind of piddly, to be honest with you. It was, it was very arty, for one thing. And I'm really quite, you know, teach me how to draw, show me perspective, you know, this kind of stuff. While, while the teachers were all like, no, express your emotions. And I, I wanted to learn the craft. So I did find it a little frustrating. Just the animation course, the film course was amazing and I'm sure the animation course nowadays is amazing. But at a certain point, Celine ran out of money and couldn't afford to go to college anymore. There was financial trouble at home and she was already working two jobs. Around this time, she bumped into a friend who told her that she knew someone who was working at an animation studio. So I took my portfolio that day and walked up the keys to them and applied for a job in Blutes. And then... She waited. I was in a hairdresser's 
somewhere in Dublin, and they were doing this ridiculous haircut to me. It may have been one of those, you know, where you go in for free. Anyway, they were, give, they were giving me an auburn pudding bowl haircut, as far as I remember. And I hadn't heard back, and it was kind of, you know, it was nagging at me. I hadn't heard from Blutes. I'd been kind of living with this kind of ball of tension in my chest. So I, I oh God, I'll never forget it. the poor hairdresser. I leapt up from the chair. My hair was dripping dye. And I said, I have to make a phone call. And the hairdresser was like, oh my God, she must have someone was in the hospital or something. There's a phone in the corridor. So I went out. I was, I'm pretty sure I got hair dye all over the coats. <laughs> And I rang Blutes and I said, I'm lying through my teeth now. I said, I've just been offered my place back in college or I can take a job. Um, and I was wondering, you know, it's now or never for me. Have you got anything for me? And they said, oh, gosh, really? Well, come on up for an in-between test. And that was it. I went up and did the in-between test. Celine was hired. being rejected from art college we're looking at like about a year and a half to two years later about two years later I would secure a job in feature animation Peter Donnelly is a children's book author and illustrator but back in the late 80s he just secured a job with Don Bluth it was great it was brilliant because at, at the time when I was working in feature animation one or two years you know people of my age were coming out of our college and you know, there wasn't a lot to do then. You could be a graphic designer or a fine artist, really. It was really design or fine art. Obviously, there was no web and web design and stuff like that back then. So a lot of those people would have been applying to get into the Blute Studios and weren't getting in at that stage because, you know, they basically filled up their numbers. So you'd want, they were only taking experienced people in by that stage. So, in the, in, you know, when I look back, I kind of got a fast track. I got a really lucky Willy Wonka ticket straight into animation. That's the way I kind of look at it. It was it was unbelievable. Like it was like art school, but getting paid for it because they allowed us the time to to be trained up because they knew we were kind of, you know, we hadn't got much experience. We'd done a test. We, we had an idea how to do it, and he had brought a lot of experienced ex Disney people over, and they were training us. So, um, but it was great. Like I mean, I think like at the time, I think we were getting like ninety quid a week, which was was great. You, you give your math twenty, it's seventy quid. Like you know. I mean, they're, they're, they were the times you could go out on a fiver. You know, you could get three points of Smithix on a fiver, like, you know, so you're, you're, you're wealthy, like, you know, <laughs> in Dublin terms. But it was great. There was a really young, vibrant crowd of people working in it. I absolutely loved it because for me, it was the chance that I knew I wasn't going to get in college. It was the thing that I wanted to do. And as well, the, there was just this intense atmosphere of learning there. Intense. It was just they wanted you to do better. They wanted you to, to know your craft. If you were interested in one of the departments, you could go down. The people who were there would talk to you. They'd tell you how to fix things. You would stand, when you were training to be an animator, you could stand behind an animator for, I mean, half an hour, an hour. They're going through your scene a, a line at a time, telling you where you're going wrong. So, you know, it was very... You had to, you had to want to be good... But if you wanted to be good, like, I mean, they, they took the time. It really genuine was like being paid to go to college with, with lecturers that totally knew their stuff. So I loved it. Jerry Sheeran is managing director of Cartoon Saloon. But in 1990, he took his first job in animation at Sullivan Bluth as production manager. 
like no place else I'd ever worked and probably like no place anybody had ever experienced in Ireland. They really made it very American for the American guys and girls that were overworking. You know, what would have been unusual, a masseuse would come in on a Friday afternoon <laughs> so you could book your time with it for a massage. It was almost like a precursor to Google and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Way before its time, yeah. You know, we had, we had a screening room in the studio where we were getting first-run films as soon as they, even pre-release, before they were released theatrically in Ireland with our connections with the distributors. So all these things that you thought were, you know, were really great. There was a fantastic party atmosphere. There was a couple of hundred people working there. So a lot of things going on. And then it was just this crazy creative environment. The fact was that we ate, drank, slept animation. I mean, a lot of us slept under our desks. Celine Kiernan. Majority of us didn't know our family's faces. like, And so if you hadn't had that kind of freedom, I mean, you would have your production supervisor coming around going, shit, what time is it? Well, you, can't be, you can't be having a fag now at this hour of the day. You know, occasionally, but you'd really want to have stretched it. The thing was that the constraints were that you had to get your footage out. So they knew whether or not you were producing the work. And if that meant you had to go for a walk in the Phoenix Park or you had to go down and sit and look at the Liffey for a while or you had to go get a cup of coffee, that was your business, as long as you were getting the work done. And it it really did feel like being treated like an adult, you know. Ireland in the 1980s was in recession and unemployment was high. It's a very depressing figure. Taoiseach at the time, Gareth Fitzgerald. Undoubtedly, the bad summer has been bad for the country, uh, bad for the people, and uh, not helpful for the government. Uh, But that's life. A lot of people who would have been artistic and wouldn't have been able to earn a living in the arts were unable to earn a living working in the arts, which is pretty much a new thing for Dublin. Andrew Fitzpatrick was the financial director for Sullivan Bluth at the time. There was massive culture shock for the group of animators, 77 of them, who came to Dublin. I mean, Ireland in the 1980s was like America in the 50s. I mean, it was very depressed, uh, huge unemployment. Crime was relatively bad compared to how it would have been in, in the fancier parts of L.A. that they came from. And, of course, the weather was horrible. Also, the lack of multiculturalism. So, yeah, it was a major culture shock and it made it difficult to adjust. I think these days the, the difference between L.A. and Dublin wouldn't be so acute. The Sullivan Bluth Studios occupy Phoenix House in Dublin, which has been vacant for several years. I went over there with our production manager, Fred Craig, and we looked at several buildings. Gary Goldman again. And we finally selected that place. And we also were dealing with a head of production from Universal. He wanted to approve it. So he flew over and he agreed. He saw the building, saw this is perfect. The building had been built and I think it had sat there for six years. No one occupied it. We were the first occupants. So we, we picked the flooring, we picked everything about it. We had showers put on a couple of floors, lady showers on the fourth floor, men's showers on the fifth floor. And, you know, it just went from there. We even took part of the parking lot in the bottom and we turned that into a lab and to where we kept all of our cameras. You know, the big rostrum cameras, we had three of them. So it was, uh, it was interesting. We started with the uh, fifth floor and we kept the first floor. To, and they, they put this queen, you know, that plastic that comes in rolls? and built a room out of plastic to keep the dust away from the rostrum camera. Higher time we were doing Lamb Before Time, there were jackhammers going, hammering, and you name it, drills that were, you know, because it was all metal framework. It was very difficult to have focus with all that noise going on the whole time. 
But it was it was an interesting thing to look back at that. You know, something you can laugh and toast to. This holiday season, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg present a Don Bluth film, The Land Before Time. Over the next few years, Sullivan Bluth Studios made feature animated films like The Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven, and Rock-A-Doodle. What are the ingredients that make classical animation a cut above the rest? Well, it all starts with a blank sheet of paper. As in all motion pictures, animation is created by projecting 24 still images onto the screen per second. In order to produce an average-length animated feature, there must be over 100,000 of these images, or frames. Artists at Sullivan Bluth carefully create detailed drawings for each and every frame, sometimes with as many as 10 separate drawings per frame, to bring to life characters and environments that are as believable as the world in which we live. Critics loved An American Tale and The Land Before Time. Some even compared them to films from Disney's Golden Age, which is exactly what Don, Gary and John wanted to achieve. I like the idea that it's a symbolic language. Don Bluth. It tells in symbols, it tells you about the human condition better than probably any other medium. If I see a live action picture on the movie screen, I know those are people up there. But somehow I can look at little characters or little animals or little things on the screen and they become metaphors for human behavior. And therefore, you're able to talk directly to people and say things about our condition as humans that people would object to if it weren't an animal. For example, Bambi is certainly not a deer, although that's what I'm looking at. Bambi is a little boy who's trying to grow up. He has a lot of help in getting there and runs into life's difficulties, including losing his mother. Now, if that were done in live action, if it were real people, then, you know, I think I would probably not go see it. But because it looks innocent, is told in symbolic terms, I think it, it gets through to me. It's like music gets through to me faster than words. Well, animation does the same thing. Like, Bluth obviously then pushed Disney to do better in the next couple of years because... Because you guys were doing better. You know what? You, you, and you just read my mind, Liam, because the next stage of this conversation is competition breeds excellence. John Pomeroy. And there was no competition for Disney Studios. And, uh, of course, in between 1978 and 79, we began thinking, are we witnessing the demise of the art form as we love it? What can we do about it? Well, we can leave and start our own studio and make our best effort. And if we're successful, then the competitive spirit will urge Disney on to trying better themselves. And it did. I mean, we were an irritation to them at first, and then it, it became a stimulus for them to integrate, to reinvent themselves. And suddenly that new generation of artists from Cal Arts was now kicking into high gear and making films like Aladdin, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. Our second report this evening comes, as promised, from Dublin, which, thanks to the Sullivan Bluth Studios, makes strong claim to be the capital of animated film production in Europe. At a time when escalating costs have caused animation everywhere to lose much of its subtlety, the work at Sullivan Bluth has been compared to the golden age of Disney. Peter Donnelly remembers working one-to-one with Bluth. Making um, what we call model sheets, which, you know, and I'd be standing over him and he'd be drawing and... You know, he was kind of an intimidating presence, like, you know, in the sense that, like, 
first of all, he was American. He was different. He had the, the swagger and the confidence that, you know, at the time, Irish people didn't have, I suppose. Plus, you know, he was a genius artist. But I always found him to be, if, if, if he could sense off you that you were interested in learning, he had time for you and, he, and he'd show you. And, it, it, you know, OK, he was a little bit impatient, but if he could see that you were picking some of the things up that he was saying, he was interested in you. He'd no time for wasters. And, you know, I was, I was kind of like a bit of a sponge at that time. I was, I was soaking up every piece of information and tips I could get. There was no sense of, these are the golden gods and you can't... No, no, it was like you'd go up to them with your line test. You'd be kind of <laughs> shaking a little bit. But, you know, every day you'd bring your animation to them and they'd look at it on the video and they'd tear you to little tiny pieces and then you'd go back and cry for a while. And, yeah, no, no, they were like a completely part of the process. The, the whole experience of working with Don and Gary was terrific. Former Sullivan Bluth production manager, Jerry Sheeran. I worked really closely with them for a couple of years. They really were fantastic. Idiosyncratic type of work environment with Don. He had very high standards of work and, you know, could, uh, could be difficult when things were not going well. But, you know, everybody looked up to him, there's no doubt. You know, and everybody appreciated his talents, yeah. An American Tale was in production when the Irish studio was set up and Irish people painted cells on an American tale. Andrew Fitzpatrick, former Sullivan Bluth finance director. And then the studio moved over during the production of The Land Before Time. And then we produced in Ireland All Dogs Go to Heaven, Rockadoodle, Thumbelina, The Pebble and the Penguin. Um, I'm forgetting one, I think. Yeah. Troll in Central, Central Park. How could I forget that? <laughs> Bluth's first couple of films enjoyed both critical and commercial success. But with each passing film, the reviews got less and less favourable. The studio itself was running into financial trouble. So much so that in October 1992, the matter was raised in the Irish Parliament. Deputy Tomás Miguela gave me notice of his intention to raise the matter as to the liquidation of Don Bluth Entertainment Limited and the resulting loss of employment. The Minister of Industry and Commerce, Mary O'Rourke, said, It is believed that in the event of a liquidation, an attempt will be made to sell the assets as a package to an investor who would wish to complete the films at the Dublin studio using the company's workforce, the company's present workforce. It is too early to say if the efforts now being made will secure the future of the company. However, I can assure the deputy and the House that every effort continues to be made to save the company and the jobs, and it is indeed... The studio was in trouble. There was a lot of pressure. Andrew Fitzpatrick. I think there always is. There are always deadlines and we were always behind. It was a, it was a pressurised environment. But I think that because the, the work was so satisfying, I think that most people enjoyed that. Most. How did... Because this is funny. This story kind of changes slightly every time I talk to someone about how Sullivan Bluth came to finish up. Like, I mean, why, why did that happen? What were the circumstances that led to that happening? Uh, yeah, I can explain that exactly because I, I, I was right there at the coalface. I mean, firstly, as I mentioned, the company was never properly capitalised. I mean, the IDA put in, I think it was just over four million pounds and no other equity ever went into the studio. And I remember, you know, when we were negotiating the deal, because normally there, there would have to be matching funding so that if the Irish government or the IDA was putting in four million, the entrepreneurs behind the project would also need to put in four million. But they... 
they didn't have any money. And I remember Morris Sullivan saying, if it's money you want, I can bring you down the road and introduce you to some guys at Bank of America, but they can't animate worth the damn. <laughs> that did become a problem. And, uh, you know, I remember arguing with Morris saying, look, Morris, because we had a, a significant offer of equity investment. I remember arguing with him saying, we need to do this because we need a, a capital base. And he was, oh, no, 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 no. We'll make money first and, and uh, you know, and then we'll go public or whatever. So the reason that the business closed was lack of equity, but the, the specifics, a bit more strange than that. We got, after various trials and tribulations, we got an investor in Hong Kong, which was a company called Media Asia, which belonged to Star TV, which belonged to a guy called Lee Ka Sheng, who had a big conglomerate called Hutchison Wampoa. They sold Star TV to News Corporation. Basically, they became part of Fox. The initial reaction at Fox was, oh, great, we bought a TV company, a satellite broadcaster in Asia, and we've ended up owning a theatrical studio in Dublin. What do we do with that? So they put us in under the Fox umbrella. We got a call from Peter Chernin and Bill Mechanic at Fox. Gary Goldman. Saying, what are you guys doing? We said, we're making movies. And he said, we'd like to talk to you about helping Fox start its own animation studio. So we listened. Don and I were put on a plane and flown over to L.A. for a dinner meeting with the two of them. And the next day flown back. They just wanted to know if we were good guys or not fun to be around. And uh, they liked us. So they said, all right, well, let's start talking because, you know, what about your company? We said, well, we don't own it anymore. There was a guy called Bill Mechanic who had left Disney to run Fox and he really wanted to make animated films so that they were very excited until they realised that we had a seven-year output deal with Warner Brothers. So every dollar that Rupert Murdoch put in was making Bob Daly and Terry Samuel 25 cents in distribution fees. And News Corp doesn't like that kind of thing. So they decided to close the studio and it took some time because at one point they were supposed to be selling it to a group which included myself. We had a signed deal, but in the end they decided they wanted to set up instead in Phoenix. They didn't want the competition making films for Warner Brothers in Dublin and they shut the studio. so sad it was really it was really kind of darkish time I mean it, they shut down a few times over the course of my career with them and they always managed to claw their way back again because you know, I mean that's the film business and you you see it now there's no stable studios now there's no stable productions now back then they were rolling from one film to another in the in the same way I think they I think they really hoped that they'd have the same kind of uh, stability that Disney had had for so long. Really, they should have, because they were very, very good at what they did. Um, but, but you know, it, it, you could kind of see that coming to an end anyway. And it, it just kind of, they just couldn't get the stable backing. After the studio closed, I, I, was, I was pretty upset because I went from having an expectation of owning the studio I'd run for a long time Andrew Fitzpatrick. And having a legally binding agreement to do that and having the money in escrow and Coots Bank in London to, to, to close the transaction, I went from being very excited to being very unemployed. So I went off to Copenhagen and got very drunk for, for a weekend. Don and Gary headed off for Phoenix, Arizona to Fox Animation Studios. Then they imposed a, a rule that you, you guys are free to go, but you cannot ask any of these employees to go with you. 
So we told the employees we weren't allowed to ask them to go, but if they if they applied, we wouldn't turn them down. So a hundred, I want to say 160 total uh, people from all around the world that were actually working in Ireland came on board. <laughs> 62 of them were Irish. Peter Donnelly was one of them. Oh, it was an absolute culture shock. From the evening I stepped off that airplane and that, that heat hit me. Very, very strange place. I mean, you know, it's a desert. What was very hard to get used to was everywhere was air-conditioned. Like, you, it was so warm that nobody walked the streets, really, except, like, homeless people. At the weekend where in Dublin you would be used to going to town, you know, just to hang around town or going out for a beer or whatever and meeting up with your mates, the centre of the city had nobody in it because like, everybody was indoors. So it was, it was a very, very strange place. And it took, it took me, I spent about six years there. It took me about two years to get used to it. I kind of went through a bit of a depression over there, as, as did a lot of people. You know, they just couldn't handle it. Like, it was just crazy. We were probably partying too much as well. Because when we got over there first, the studio wasn't actually set up yet, but they were paying us from day one. So, you know, we, we were just like, we just had to come in, clock in at the time get paid your wage and just go off for the day. And it sounds ideal, but it, it was actually counterproductive in a way. It was only when the studio started getting really busy and we, you know, it really felt like work. Then things settled down a little bit. We began to enjoy it. For Celine Kiernan and her husband, who also worked for Bluth, it was a hard decision whether to go to Arizona or not because they had two very small children. In the end, they made the move. So it was very tough and we didn't want to stay. And we knew corporate animation at that stage well enough to know that the contracts that they'd give you would mean they'd be very much on their side so if they wanted to keep you you'd have no choice about it but if you wanted to you know if they wanted to boot you out you'd also have no choice about it but we were very careful that we painstakingly negotiated a contract where we could leave after 18 months we could leave regardless of whether they wanted us to or not and we did we ran after 18 months because it just wasn't the right place for us. The corporate side things over there was horrific. I mean, particularly coming from the type of atmosphere that we'd been in, where they kind of... I mean, it was always a case of, we can fill your chair tomorrow. You know, I mean, that's always a case of it, and it's perfectly true. But over there, it was very much... Yeah, no, it was very unpleasant. But I think we survived it because... And I say survived because it was a very, very different type of place than we were used to. But we, we got used to it. Just, just culturally, like, I mean, it, like, it was a beautiful place from, you know, from the, the Southwestern culture, like the, the, the Indian reservations and the rural side of it was amazing. But um, it was just so, so very different in that sense. It didn't have the culture. It didn't, it didn't really have, it had seasons, but it wasn't like Irish seasons. And, you know, dare I say, but Irish people, you do miss that rain when you're away. Don Bluth and Gary Goldman may have left rainy Dublin, but they left a legacy of animators. I think when Bluth closed, we were all of the opinion, that's it, the animation industry is over in Ireland because Murakami Wolf had already closed, Emerald City had already closed. An awful lot of the artists, most of the artists probably, went abroad. So, you know, it looked like it was dead. But, you know, over time people came back. We did a bit in Monster Productions and a few other smaller studios set up. And over time, you know, companies like, like Brown Bag and Cavalier and Cartoon Saloon have been at the, the centre of growing an industry that's now several times bigger than it was then. But I think that without Bluth, that wouldn't have happened. It started off 
it showed that it was possible and it gave the skills to many of the people who are working in those studios or running those studios now. Well, you know what's interesting is that our films mirrored our experience in Ireland. Producer and animator John Pomeroy. We left the United States for Dublin on the very eve of the premiere of American Tale, which is about a immigrant family going to a new world. They're going from Russia to the United States. Well, that exactly is what we were doing at that very moment. We were leaving U.S., going to Ireland. What's Land Before Time about? It's about how different species, different people coexist together for one cause. That's what we were doing in Ireland, building an industry and integrating ourselves with that culture. All Dogs Go to Heaven was about us declaring our own independence and doing what we wanted to do, which was Charlie B. Barkin's story. Each of these pictures kind of mirrored our experience while we were there in Ireland. In just a minute, Don Bluth on Driving in Ireland. But first, Meet Your Maker is produced and hosted by me, Liam Garrity. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. You can support the show in many ways. Write a review, tell your friends, give us a shout out on social. That really helps. As you can imagine, an episode like this one takes a lot of time and work to produce. So if you want to support the show with a few euro or whatever the currency is where you are, then you can do that and get rewards at patreon.com forward slash meetyourmaker. This episode is part of Meet Your Maker's Animation Island, a series about the history of animation in Ireland. There's already been three episodes of the story detailing B.B., before Bluth, and very soon there will be new episodes about what happened after Bluth left. And speaking of Bluth, when he moved to Ireland, he had to get used to a lot of things here. The language, the culture, and the roads. I had a really wonderful car, and I wasn't very good at driving on the the left side of the street because we're just opposite here. Wasn't very good at that, and I was the one who kept There was always a corporation that were digging holes in the road, and I always ran my car into one of those holes. (laughs) And uh, I would call someone at the studio and say, I've done it again, I've wrecked a car, I'm in a hole somewhere downtown, and they would come and get me out of there. (laughs) 